I need to start with a confession. What, I, what I'm about to tell you will potentially cause some hurt. Because I've been reflecting on New Zealand's performance in sport recently. <laughs> and, and I had all these hopes and expectations. This year was meant to be the year of our unstoppable march to victory. But reflecting on it, I just, I just feel incredibly let down. And it got me thinking, sometimes this is the way I feel about the Christian life. Sometimes the Christian life is looking so good. People are turning to Jesus. I'm happy. People around me are happy. I'm in a great church, and things are looking up. But then I go a few rounds, and I get punched in the gut by some kind of opposition, and I start to wonder, does Christianity really deliver? When something we hope in doesn't deliver, it stumbles at more and more opposition, it makes us wonder, can I, can I trust this anymore? Can I really put my hope in this? Do you, ever, do you ever feel that? And well, what we find in Acts chapter 3 and 4 today is that God's history is not like New Zealand's. That the gospel we have as Christians is truly on an unstoppable march to victory. And so while last week we saw that 3,000 were added to the early church, this week that number grows to 5,000. The kids talk helpfully called this mission unstoppable. And God, by His Spirit, empowers us to speak the gospel with boldness because Jesus Christ is Lord. So let's dive in. So our first point in the outlines, the picture of restoration. The first part of chapter 3, verses 1 to 10, uh, begin with a historical account of a miraculous healing. Now, at the end of chapter 2 last week, Luke wrote that the apostles did many wonders and miracles, miraculous signs. So this, this led me to the question, how many of these miraculous wonders and signs was Luke going to tell us about? How many of these would you include if you had been a part of these miracles and wanted to record the message of the early church? Because surprising to some, Luke chooses just this one to focus on in any great detail. So yes, there are a few other incidences of miracles later on in Acts, but not to this great detail or length. And he elaborates on this one miracle because Luke wants to show us a picture of restoration. He wants to show us that Jesus is still ruling and blessing this world, and we are shown a man who is wonderfully restored to wholeness, which is a preview or picture of where the whole plan of God is going. This miracle is a picture of the future. So as we read earlier, two apostles, Peter and John, are walking into the temple. And as they're on their way, they see a man who's been unable to walk since birth, and he's begging. Now, I don't know about you, but, but for me, I usually try to avoid eye contact with beggars, as selfish as it sounds. Maybe it's my Asian upbringing. I'm often thinking, you know, I've got to save all my money. Who knows? But Peter and John, on the other hand, they look straight at the man, and the man looks right back at them. He's expecting money. He wants money, but instead... Peter and John give him something far better. Acts chapter 3, verse 6, should be on the screen. I don't have silver or gold, I don't have any money, they say, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Now it's important for us to realize that Luke doesn't include miracles into his historical account because he thinks miracles are going to convince people to become Christians. 
See, in fact, later on in Acts chapter 4, Luke writes that not everyone was convinced of Jesus, despite this miracle happening right in front of them. So why does, why does Luke include this? And well, I think the first thing to notice is that the miracle here is very much like one of Jesus' miracles. It's, 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 it's instantaneous, it's obvious, and there's no clear rationale or scientific explanation. And the reason it's so similar is because it's still Jesus at work. It's Jesus' miracle. When Peter says, in the name of, he means by the power of this person. Not the power of me, Peter, but the power of Jesus. And Luke includes these details because he wants us to know that Jesus is still ruling and blessing this world after his ascension. Remember at the start of Acts, Luke's gospel was only what Jesus began to do and teach, but Jesus is still working. And in this healing of the lame man, we get a taste, a foreshadow of where Jesus is taking this world, a picture of his restoration. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah 35, the last series we're in, it looks forward to a time where God will restore his world, and it says, among other things, the lame will leap like a deer. This healing of a lame man is a picture of this, and we see him in verse 8, walking and leaping and praising God. Must have looked like a deer as well. It's not about doing the miraculous here right now, but it's about what the miraculous one, Jesus, is bringing in. This is a picture of the restoration to come. But in this passage, it's also worth noting the unique decision Peter and John had to make. They could have given this man some money, were they just a bit stingy like me, or could they have given him something far better? And I wonder if we all realize that we also have something far better to offer the world than simply money. When we are face-to-face with suffering and human need, we can either help and give to people in a way that resolves their immediate needs right here, right now, or we can help and give to people in a way that is conscious of the world to come. See, one option leaves the person in the state that they're in, one of judgment and death before God, while the other leads the person into a new state, one of forgiveness and eternity with God. This picture of restoration we see in Acts chapter 3 is a picture of moving from a state of helplessness, being unable to walk, into a new state, a restored one. And when someone decides to accept the gospel, they move from a new state, from a state of deadness into a state of restored life. On the last day when Jesus comes back, I personally don't want people crying out to me asking, why don't you give me the gospel? Why don't you tell me about Jesus? You knew what I truly needed. Why did you only give me a piece of bread instead of the bread of life itself? Can you imagine that? On the last day, someone telling you, you fed me physically, you helped my sickness, but you didn't give me what I ultimately needed in the end. You left me in my sins when you knew they could be forgiven. Now, I'm not trying to knock on charity organizations or social justice, all good causes, but I hope this helps us to realize why we as a church support organizations like Tear Fund over certain others, because it's got the gospel built into it. And I hope that when we are thinking about giving money to certain causes, 
We are looking for those that has the gospel built into it. Causes that are conscious of the world to come. What we see in this miraculous healing is a picture of restoration. And what we find is that Jesus is offering the world something far greater than what it expects. So this leads us on to our second point, the person of restoration. Should be on your outlines. Acts chapter 3, verse 12 on the screen. When Peter saw this, he addressed the people, fellow Israelites, why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us as though we had made him walk by our own power or godliness? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant, Jesus. After the healing miracle, as you might expect, it drew quite the crowd. And there are two key things to take away from Peter's immediate response to them. So the first one, the first um, The first thing to notice is he wants to draw their attention away from the miracle and instead draw their attention to Jesus. Why are you amazed at this? This miracle, he asks. There's something even better to be amazed at. God has glorified glorified Jesus. The Messiah, the Christ, the Lord we've been waiting for has come. That's what should amaze you. And the reality is, is that in every church gathering, there are people who gather because they are amazed at or looking for something other than Jesus. Maybe it's, it's good friendship. Maybe it's the music. It might even be the pastor's amazing teaching. It's certainly not mine, but I hope you get the idea. People decide to stay or leave because of something other than Jesus. And the lesson here is that if our Christianity is all horizontal, but not yet vertical, then we must find time to deal with Jesus ourselves and really work out who he is to us. Is he our Messiah, our Lord, the person of our restoration? Is he what we're looking for? Or is it something else? The second thing we can take away from this, Peter's response, I think is a huge encouragement. Peter says, why are you looking at us? You think that by our own power or godliness we did this? No way. We're incompetent. We don't have the power to do something like that. It's all Jesus. I remember around three years ago or so, I was thinking through stepping out of my PhD, which was going well, to do a ministry apprenticeship, which is why I'm up here now. (laughs) And I remember saying to Rowan, maybe if I did the ministry apprenticeship after getting my PhD, It would mean the things I say would have more weight or value in the eyes of the world. Because of my title, you know, Dr. Yong, I could make the gospel more convincing, more believable, more attractive. But what an idiot. We all do that, don't we, though? We think we could say the gospel in a way that will change people's hearts or know enough to convince anyone. Maybe, or maybe it's the other way around, where we feel like we don't know enough, so we don't talk about the gospel at all. We think we'll push people away from the gospel. But this is just the other side of the same coin. We think it depends on us, but we need to learn from Peter and John. It's all about Jesus. Only Jesus is able to save people. Only Jesus can open eyes to the truth. And only Jesus deserves the credit of bringing people to himself. And this is a great comfort for us all, that it isn't about our title, it isn't about how much we know or how articulate we can be, 
Sure, some of those things are helpful, and, and God can and will use those things. But this is a great and humbling reminder that only Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, can move people from death to life. Now, as Peter redirects her attention away from the miracle all the way to Jesus, he goes on to explain who Jesus is. Who is this guy? And what we find in all this is a message of restoration, that because of who Jesus is, now is the time to turn back to God. This is point three in your outlines. Continuing on from Acts chapter 3, verse 13. Peter says, the guy I'm talking about is the guy you rejected and handed over to be killed 60 days ago, just two months ago. Do you remember him? Let me remind you, Peter says, he's the one you insisted on killing off. He's the one you rejected and picked a murderer over. Is this all starting to sound a little familiar? Well, as Peter goes on, did you know who he was? Because he says in verse 15, you killed the source of life. You killed the holy and righteous one. That's how the Jews spoke about God himself. You killed God, says Peter. And can you imagine hearing that? How would you feel realizing you had turned your back on the very person who came to save you? Turned your back on the one who made you, the perfect and loving God. And friends, this is the Christian message. That's exactly what we've all done. We have turned our backs on Jesus, just like the Jews Peter is speaking to. And what Peter is doing here, and what the message of the gospel always does, is it confronts us with the reality of our sin. How far our hearts will go to kill Jesus, to remove God when he's inconvenient for us. And well, as Peter confronts them with their sin, he wants them to realize how badly their hearts need restoring, their hearts of stone, and how in Jesus we are finally able to find that restoration. When the God of the Bible confronts us with our sin, it's not the only thing he confronts us with. He confronts us with his incredible forgiveness and mercy. Acts chapter 3, verse 17. And now, brothers and sisters, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your leaders also did. In this way, God fulfilled what he had predicted through all the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer. Therefore, repent and turn back, so that your sins may be wiped out. So the first thing to notice is, Fault doesn't rest just on those on leadership, but also on those who choose to follow that leadership. Everyone needs forgiveness. Everyone is responsible for their contribution. But also here, Peter's not excusing sin. He's not telling them it was okay that they killed off Jesus. Ignorance is not an excuse for sin. And even though they might not have realized what they were doing, who they were killing off, they were ignorant to it, God did. God knew, and God said it would happen all along. There was one incident in my old flat, flat of 10 Christian guys, and one of our flatmates needed to use some formal shoes for an event. Now, no one knew he needed to use some shoes, and instead of asking anyone, he thought he could take some for the night, and no one would notice. Maybe he didn't think it was that big of a deal. Maybe he didn't think anyone would lend him some shoes. He did this in ignorance. Unfortunately for him, the owner of the shoes he happened to borrow was very meticulous, unlike me. 
and he knew that someone had taken his shoes. Although the guy didn't realize it, he had hugely offended the shoes owner. Like seriously, broken relationships, broken trust, the disgust at the thought of someone else's feet in his shoes. It was a massive deal. Although the offender was unaware of the effects it would have or did have, something had to be done to fix this debacle. Now, I know this may sound like a bit of a clowny story of what my old flat got up to, but in all seriousness, I tell you this because it doesn't just illustrate the attitude the Jews had towards killing off Jesus and breaking any relationship they might have had with God, but it also highlights the only thing that could restore the relationship and trust back in our flat. It was repentance. Confession and repentance. And this is the same thing Peter calls the crowd to do in Acts chapter 3, verse 19. It should be on the screen. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. And as Peter tells the people who killed Jesus 2,000 years ago that God is willing to wipe their sins clean to forgive them, then we don't have to go very far to realize that God is able to forgive anyone. But that's not all that happens when you repent and turn back. There's also, in verse 20, refreshment, life-giving refreshment. This is simply another word for the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, which enables us to focus our lives on God and to love Him. And then there's another promise we need to wait for. It's in verse 21. In the end, when Jesus comes back, we will be in His presence forever, and we will be in a restored world forever. There comes a time when there is no more suffering, no more pain, no more sin. Tying together Peter's whole message, the whole chapter, is Acts chapter 3, verse 22 to 26. Peter refers back to a couple of Old Testament passages, and he uses them to point them back to who the person of restoration is. It's Jesus. Peter's entire message is ultimately about who Jesus is. Who is he? And that's ultimately what the gospel is about. See, Peter tells this Jewish crowd that this moment in history, the Jesus you killed off, the Jesus who we saw raised from the dead, he isn't simply another prophet. Jesus isn't the next Samuel, Isaiah, Jonah, Micah, and so on. There's no more waiting. Jesus is the one where all of God's promises lead to and come out from. Jesus is the offspring that God promised to bless the whole earth. And so Peter says, you all have a choice to make. You either listen to him, follow Jesus, and find God's blessing, or you don't. And you are, verse 23, cut off. No forgiveness, no refreshment, and no hope for the future. Now this would have been exciting news for the crowd, though. Because thousands of years of waiting, waiting for God's promised blessings, these were now fulfilled in Jesus. And though it might not have been how they initially expected God's Messiah to show up, in Acts chapter 4 verse 4, we see that they decide to make the right choice. They repent, they turn back and believe, and their number grows to 5,000. But the question I want to ask is, what does it look like to repent and turn back and believe. So let me try to illustrate that for you. One week after the shoe incident, the one I was talking about before, the tension was still high. Our flat was, you know, pretty silent, usually, you know, 10 guys, usually very chatty. 
private conversations were going on, whispering, cold shouldering, you know, you name it. But then finally, the offender did what all public offenders should do. He went to Facebook. <laughs> now, I know it's quite clowny, but it was actually quite brilliant, and it so helpfully illustrates true repentance. So I've actually got his message, and I want to share that with you guys. I've left out the name, some of the details, and I have his permission to share this with you. It should be on the screen. I'll read it to you. Dear flatmates, I wanted to confess what really happened to the shoes for those who don't know. I took his shoes without his permission and lied to him afterwards. I'm sorry. When I became a Christian, I was committed at first, and everything in my life seemed great. I had new friends and a new life to experience, but things started to turn back to the way it was after I got baptized. In short, I took advantage of God's promise and felt nothing wrong with my actions. This year has not been kind to me. I've lost a lot this year and kept most of the bad things that happened only to myself because I feel it is a shame or burden to share it with others. When people ask me of prayer requests, I've always replied, nothing special, I'm doing okay, but I'm tired, very tired. As you can see, this is what I am and who I am, this is me, a liar to God and to his brothers. I'm sorry, please forgive me, in Christ, flatmate. So that's repentance. When Peter says to repent and turn back, verse 19, he means coming clean to God. So let me ask you, have you come clean with God? Or are you still playing games with God, pretending you haven't offended him or claiming ignorance? Stop hiding. Because the great news is, when we confess to God and truly repent, he doesn't see us as liars. He doesn't see us as thieves, porn addicts, alcoholics, whatever we might need to confess. God sees us as his children and he loves us and forgives us. Okay, now moving on to chapter 4, I've, convinced, I've condensed Acts chapter 4 into one key theme. Boldness, a picture of boldness. This is the next point in your outlines. Acts 4 is the first encounter of opposition we see in the book of Acts, but it's important to realize that this is not unfamiliar opposition. So you see, the, the people behind this opposition were the exact same people who opposed Jesus and arrested him back in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it had been even more striking for the readers who might have read Luke's first volume, the book of Luke. Now, all the events we saw in chapter 3 must have been quite the headache for this opposition. See, they thought they had gotten rid of Jesus, killed him off. But here are these two troublemakers, the apostles Peter and John, not just teaching about Jesus, not just having a friendly chat about what Jesus did and taught, but they were telling people, in Jesus' name, the resurrection of the dead was now available. So in Acts 4 verse 3, they took them into custody, and let's read from verse 5. It should be on the screen. The next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them, by what power or in what name have you done this? About two months earlier, in Luke chapter 22, around the end of Luke, Peter saw these same men take Jesus into custody, which led to Jesus' death. In that same chapter, Peter decides to deny that he knew Jesus at all, and he goes on to deny Jesus three times. But this time, this time is different. 
Peter stands up and speaks, verse 8. And the difference this time around is that Jesus has risen from the dead and Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. And even though Peter knew death was a very real possibility, Peter probably thought to himself, I don't care. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. And I'm not going to deny him this time. So let's read a speech, Acts chapter 4, verse 9 to 12. If we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Now there's two things, just two things I want to point out from this part of our passage today. The first one is that Peter's message has all the same ingredients as the one we looked at in chapter 3. The only real difference is which Old Testament passage he decides to refer back to. So instead of Deuteronomy and Genesis, this time he uses one of the Psalms. The fact that Peter's message doesn't change is something we should expect. We expect it because our message about Jesus doesn't change. When we are thinking about sharing the gospel to our friends or family, we don't need to worry about all these technical words, whether or not we've memorized the whole Bible. We don't even need an epic personal testimony. All we need is the message about Jesus that we all know and love. The same message Peter preaches again and again, we will see in Acts. Knowing this also protects us against false teaching. It helps us to recognize and be alert to teaching that has added to or taken away from the gospel. Now, the second thing I want to point out about this speech here was in verse 12. Hopefully you noticed it. In verse 12, Peter says, There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name by which people must be saved. What Peter is saying here, Jesus isn't just one of the many ways to God. He's not even saying Jesus is the best way to God. What he's saying is that Jesus is the only way to God. Other religions, other ways to view God or view the world aren't different pathways up the same mountain. They're not the same animal but different parts. Everything else leads people away from God and away from the forgiveness and hope he offers. This claim about Jesus, it really offended the Jewish leaders at the time. And the reality is, it offends people today. It sounds so, so arrogant and so intolerant, and people don't like hearing it. But the irony is, only in the gospel is there true radical inclusivity. As we go on in our passage, we find that Peter's speech had a massive impact. But it wasn't just the message alone. It was his boldness and courage that made the message compelling. This is the next point in your outlines if you're following along. The impact, the impact of boldness. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. I think we learn a great deal about sharing the gospel and evangelism in this part of the passage. The fact that Peter and John were willing to stand firm 
and tell people about Jesus in the face of opposition made people think to themselves, maybe I should listen to this. Maybe there's something here. And that boldness has the same effect today. See, when we shy away from telling people what they need to hear, that they need Jesus, when we keep our mouths shut about that, what we're really telling people is that Jesus isn't that important. They don't really need him. But when we are bold and tell people about Jesus, even if we're not very articulate, even if we're untrained, when we are bold, people will see how much we value our Lord Jesus Christ. People will stop and wonder, what has captivated this person so much? But it's also important to notice here that the passage says unskilled and untrained, but it doesn't ever say uninformed. Peter and John knew the scriptures well, and they were well informed on what happened in history. And this encourages us that we as Christians, we might be unskilled or untrained at times, but we are never uninformed. Others might be, but we aren't. Now back then, the Jewish leaders didn't know what to say or do. So in a last-ditch effort to get rid of Jesus, you know, their headache, they threatened the apostles not to talk about Jesus anymore in verse 18. But it wasn't going to work. And Peter and John's response, I think, is one of the great verses in the Bible, one of the first things I highlighted when I was a young Christian. Let's read it together. Acts chapter 4, verse 19 to 20. Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Christians, they can't help but talk about Jesus. Some might argue that evangelism is only for those who are gifted at it. You know, the Christians who go on mission trips or have the ability to articulate the gospel well. But the reality is, if you know Jesus, truly know him and what he has done for you, like Peter and John have, you can't help but talk about him. This goes, beyond simp- this goes beyond simply, God told us to share the gospel, but it's because we are so captivated, so captured by who Jesus is and what he has done, we talk about him. Here at Auckland EV, one of the five purposes at church is mission. Now the purposes, they're not separated so we can just pick and choose whichever one we like the most and just stay there. They're separated so that we might all clearly know the different parts that encompass basic Christian living. All the people who serve in mission teams at church run things like explaining Christianity or training courses so that all of us, all of us here as a church, might live as missionaries saved and sent by Jesus. Now, I get that telling people about Jesus isn't always easy. And it feels like it just gets harder and harder to tell people about Jesus in the world we live in today. We live in a world where tolerance is the greatest virtue and intolerance is the unforgivable sin. It's so offensive to tell people that this is the one and only way to salvation. Everything else is leading you astray. So many times I find myself choosing to stay silent and even rationalizing my silence, telling myself now isn't the right time there'll be better opportunities. I tell myself not to jeopardize the friendship. But in the passage we've read today, I don't think Peter and John were so concerned with jeopardizing friendships. I think they were concerned with people's 
eternal destiny. They were concerned with people not knowing about Jesus and missing out. And even though we live in a world that is increasingly in opposition to the gospel, rejects it, thinks it's stupid, it was no different for Peter and John. And so, this leaves us with the final question, how do we be bold and courageous like Peter and John? How do we get the courage to speak? What is the source of our courage? This is the last point in your outlines. And well, from verses 23 to 31, this last bit of our passage, we see how the early Christians, not just the apostles, responded in the face of opposition. And it's an example of how we can respond too, especially when we run into opposition. So after the early church heard what happened to Peter and John, they prayed. The first thing they did was pray. So let's look at this prayer together, starting from verse 24. It should be on the screen. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth and the sea and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of your father David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot and plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. So the first half of their prayer tells us a lot about what they had been taught and what they believed. They acknowledge that God is the creator of all things and that he is ultimately in control, not them. In their prayer, they acknowledge that God, what God has said in the Old Testament. They quote Psalm 2, and essentially what they say is, you God, you told us this would happen. The world would oppose your son Jesus, conspire against him, and that's exactly what has happened. We're not surprised. But then in verse 29, this is what they ask for. So let's see what we can learn. Verse 29, Acts chapter 4, verse 29. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. They don't pray for God to make things easier. They don't pray for God to stop everyone from being so mean to them. They pray for God to make them bolder. That's their prayer. And reflecting on this, for me, in the face of opposition and rejection, I often find myself running to my Christian friends for support first. But why am I doing that when the God who is actually in control of all things is my Father? And then, and then when I do pray, I often find myself praying that God would make things easier, that He would open up doors, create opportunities, remove opposition, soften hearts, that God would ultimately make sharing the gospel easier. Now, I'm not saying those are bad things to ask for, not sinful. But when I look at what the early church prayed for, the only thing I really see is boldness. They ask for boldness to speak regardless of the opposition there is. They don't just wait for doors to be open, but to be bold and actually knock so doors might open up. And what we find is that the source of their boldness, verse 31, is God's Spirit, His Holy Spirit. And that is our source as well will only have the courage to trust and speak the gospel if we ask and receive God's Holy Spirit. 
So let me ask you all, what would it look like for you to be more bold? Maybe you're on the edge of Christianity. You're dipping your toes in, but too scared to jump. Maybe you need to come to Jesus and repent and ask God to give you the boldness to jump, to live with Him. I know it's hard. I know the costs. Family, friends, identity. But it's so worth it. Maybe you're someone who who has more confidence in New Zealand sports teams than the gospel. Maybe you just care more about the state of the sports team than the state of the gospel going out. Whatever it is, we all need to remember what team we really are on. That the team our identity is tied to isn't firstly the All Blacks, but it's God's kingdom. The team of the apostles. And Jesus is continuing to work until he returns. And the great news is, he's already won. He's won and he gives us great boldness through his Holy Spirit to see the gospel unstoppably go out. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are the one that has made all things. By your will they were created and continue to exist. You are sovereign over all. Lord, please give us, through your Holy Spirit, a genuine desire to see the name of your Son be held high. For only in his name can salvation be found. Only in his name can forgiveness be found. And only in his name is worthy of worship. Grant in us a sincere desire to see many people be saved in the name of your Son. And may we speak your word with all boldness, so many might know the love you have shown us all through the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray all these things in the name, the only name that can save, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.